Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Oksanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Okasanya. Hello there. Welcome to Retirementals. I'm Abraham Okasanya, and it's my pleasure um, on the podcast today to um, welcome um, a guest, one of the big brains of the of the industry in terms of uh, consultancy and digging into data of what's going on. I'm talking about none other uh, than Ether Hopkins, um, the the managing director of Next Wealth. Eva, welcome to Retirementals. Thank you. Thank you. To be called one of the big brains by you, Abraham, is a huge compliment. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, look, uh, we're, we're going to dive into um, a lot of the work that you've been doing, um, you know, in, in, the, in the industry. But, but before we do that, um, do you want to give us a sort of a quick run through how you got into financial services and and indeed uh you know the uk i know you're originally uh canadian so uh tell us a little bit about the journey yeah sure um so i should probably tell you how i came into financial services twice because i left and i came back (laughs) all right Um, who does that who does that it must be (laughs) so um so i I got into financial services, I think like everybody else, I just sort of fell into it by accident. Um, I was working for a political party in Canada, um, running the youth campaign for a national election. And um, and I got really, really interested in polling because I got to travel around the country with the leader of the party who was doing, you know, leader debates, all sorts of stuff. And I'd sit in these rooms with the pollsters and there would be actual voters turning dials to say how they wow. felt about the leader and what they were yeah. saying, and then reading all the polling data and, and splicing that by different demographic groups. I got completely hooked on research and market research. And, um, you know, as as was the way things were done at a certain time, I found a job in the classified section of a newspaper and um, and uh, applied and I got it for a market research firm called Dalbar. Um, it's a US company, but um, yeah. I was in their Canadian office and I started doing mystery shopping. Um, so uh, setting up fund accounts with banks and so on and doing mystery shopping. Um, and then I worked with them for seven years in Toronto and Boston. And then when I moved to the UK, um, I I didn't have any contacts. I didn't know anybody except for my husband now, then boyfriend, and um, found a job in uh, an internet startup. And so I left financial services, essentially, and I came back when I took over Platform. And it's a story I didn't really broadcast at the time because it wouldn't have been helpful to my position then. But I didn't know what an investment platform was. And I was running a business (laughs) called Platform. Completely bonkers, right? (laughs) Um, I thought a platform was a multi-sided marketplace with network effects. And it's completely the opposite of our industry, right? Like, Right, right. It's it's completely different. So I came from sort of internet startup back into financial services. But the reason I came back was because I was reminded when I was talking to clients of Platform how um, there's meaning in this industry. And and I think we sometimes lose sight of that. But when I was working for the internet startups, essentially what we were doing was helping people flog more stuff to consumers and they really are consumers it's how do you get you know what are they searching for in the internet and how do we sell more how do we optimize our digital marketing and um and 
and in financial services, there certainly is an aspect of that. I mean, you're trying to get people to invest more. But the purpose of trying to get people to engage and to invest is to give them a secure retirement and take away some of the stress that's caused from financial, you know, sense of financial insecurity. Um, and I was reminded how expert technically so many people are in this industry and how much they care about what they're actually doing. So I was I was lured back. Um, can I tell you one more thing about that journey? Please. Not only did I not know what a platform was, I was essentially a stay-at-home mom. I was working two days a week for a firm, and then I took over as head of platform. And it was such a break for me. I mean, I think they got lucky too, I will say that. Um, <laughs> but um, but there's a lot of people who think that you can't take a career break. I took seven years off, um, worked part-time, um, and then went from basically, you know, stay-at-home mom, working, you know, writing a couple of research reports for this firm called eConsultancy, to running platform, new industry, completely new role it was crazy and i loved it it was great yeah i mean it's it's incredible and you you did and still do do a brilliant you did a, a brilliant job at platform what i found is you know when people um come into the industry new you know new new people have you as you say come into the industry with fresh pairs of eyes we've seen this uh, with with the work we do at timeline and better polio when you know we bring in a product manager who doesn't understand what a fund is or a platform is he asks questions that many of us would think um you know as stupid but actually when you pause and you think wow why do we do it that way, right? Um, uh, so, so you did a brilliant job at um, at uh, Platform, and then of course you had the you have the entrepreneurial itch, and you decided to scratch it with Next Wealth. Tell us a little bit about that. So, um, so yeah, I love I mean, Next Wealth's a great business, still is, and um, and uh, but I didn't. I didn't really fit in a big company. I'd never worked in a big company. Um, and um, and I always had wanted to start my own business. I'd started a business when I was in university, briefly organizing children's parties. I don't think I have the energy to do that anymore. <laughs> but um, so, so there was the combined um, wanted to do it with a perspective. So my view was that looking at the industry, the retail wealth management industry from the perspective of platforms was the wrong perspective. Um, mm. I wanted to look at the industry from the perspective of the financial advisors um, rather than, than the sort of the custody platform on which assets are held. And um, and I think there's, a, there's just not enough information and insight about what's happening in the financial advisor market in terms of, you know, the tech that they're using, how they're running and structuring their businesses. Um, and the thing that makes it fun as a market researcher is because there's not really great data on how many firms I mean nobody really even knows how many firms there are right we know how many directly mm, mm, authorized mm, firms mm, there mm, are mm, but right you know we try and guess we, we do a lot of work to try and estimate that but there's just not much data so it makes it fun as a market researcher because we can try and pull together different sources to draw a picture of what's happening um, in tech in investment propositions and in, in advisor businesses Yes, and and you know you you've done a lot of work on that around understanding advisor tech. You've done a lot of work on model portfolios, um, you know, cost of advice. Um, so so kudos to you, and and you have my immense respect for 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 that. Um, as you know, I have been critical of consultancy generally, you know, and I think that you you are on the good side of that, right? Which is why we're having that in this conversation, which is, you know, you, you mentioned about looking at things from the advisor point of view, 
the problem, of course, is that a lot of the, uh, you know, what you see with your, your previous employers and others is that um, they're looking at things from the provider point of view and you have this convolution sometimes where, you know, they're writing reports public, paid for by providers. And I'm thinking, it's, it's, it's sitting here thinking, who, who really is the, is the client? To me, the advisors are the product. Uh, the client is the, is the provider where, um, you know, the, the, they're marketing for the providers, essentially. How do you deal with that sort of thing? We know the challenge with, um, you know, doing research from the advisor point of view is that advisors don't want to pay for this stuff. They're small firms. They don't have the revenue to, you know, maybe to, to pay for these sort of things. How do you deal with that potential conflict? So I... I, I don't know we're better at it than our competitors because I think they're really good actually um, and I have a huge amount of respect for what they do um, and 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 everybody has conflicts and it's just how you manage them um, in terms of what we do so we do a maximum number of five sponsored reports a year um, we don't write about the sponsor's business we write about issues that are related that we think are of use to financial advisors um, so we do a piece of work on retirement advice for Aegon it's not talking about Aegon's products but it's you know a comprehensive survey of what's happening in a you know in, in in terms of retirement advice and how how firms are approaching that we've had some fantastic data on that to show the rise in use of modeling tools such as timeline which is fantastic to see over the course of that study um, and then, but we try to do most of our work on a, as market reports so that um, we publish a report and multiple people can buy it. Um, and then we give free copies to advisors, which is crazy, right? We had a consultant do work for us earlier th um, last year. And um, and she said, you've got to stop selling to providers, you've got to sell to advisors. And I was like, well, it doesn't really work, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the firms that would pay, the advice firms that would pay are usually owned by providers anyway. So, right. um, so, so we do market reports where we do it once, sell it to multiple people. And then if, you know, we send a summary to people who are on our research panel, shameless plug, if you want to be part of our research panel, just Google next wealth panel, you'll find the link. And, um, and, you know, so, so we'll give a free summary to advisors and if they ask for the full copy, then we send it to them. Um, and, and that's how we try to manage our conflicts. Um, the other thing that we do is we do reports that aren't paid for. So we did a report um, in, uh, I think it was May 2020 on digital signatures. And um, so we got data from 23 platforms across 85 processes for each of those platforms to look at how are those platforms treating um, document submission? Do they need a paper form, scanned copy, you know, digital signature, or just straight through process? Because as you remember, you know, when you suddenly couldn't go and meet with clients and you needed a signature on form, you were a bit stuck. So we wanted to expose what was happening and the problem i think that the financial advisor market faces is that these lone voices calling for change are just mm. that they're lone mm. voices and it's how do you aggregate those views and that's what we see our role as is trying to aggregate the views of this disparate fragmented market to try and push for change that matters rather than than change that sometimes providers you know they do it for the right reason i think it's the thing that needs to be done but it's not necessarily what advisors really need. Um, so try to aggregate those views, if that makes sense. So anyway, long answer to say everybody has conflicts. We try our best to manage it. I, you know, I, I think we've got it right most of the time. We say no to clients who want us to come out with a particular view and we do get those and we just say no. Um, 
we have refused to renew people for market reports who put too much pressure on us. They think we're too critical of them. We won't take their business. It's not great from a business perspective, but I can sleep at night. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not asking anyone to work for free, right? You know, I'm just, uh, I'm just, I like to, I, I think that the consultancy model has, um, you know, as a challenge that advisors add pre-RDR, you know, the, the, you know, to, to try and figure out a commercial model that, that works, that's sustainable, that's scalable, um, I think it's a little bit of a challenge. But anyway, that, that's not to say that good work isn't being done. Indeed, um, you, you've done a great piece of work that, that I want us to, um, you know, to di dive into. So congrats on your um, report on model portfolio service, especially, particularly in sizing up the market, right? I, I did a tweet, you know, a while ago when I looked at uh, three consultancy, yours um, excluded, and I looked at how much they said the model portfolio market was. One said it was, you know, 40 to 60 million. The other said it was, um, I think there was one that said it was 150 million. Um, you know, and and you could drive a truck through that gap. And I we've done some work internally, um, you know, just thinking about this. And so when I saw your report, maybe it's just a validation of my own bias, you know, where you actually sized up the market, you know, properly, um, you know, covered a wide range of, of, of providers and, and you put the size of the market around, um, you know, a hundred million. So, so uh, big kudos to you on that report. And um, I should say, this is not because uh, you also identified Betafolio um, as the fastest growing, um, you know, discretionary MPS proposition in the land. And by the way, we didn't pay you for it. So this is the thing for me. It's like when somebody does independent work that anyone can buy, I can trust the work or I tend to trust the work more. Anyway, so congrats on the report. Tell us a little bit about the, um, you know, the key takeaways and findings. Yeah, sure. Um, can I just, I'm going to be like the guest on, on the Sunday morning show and say, can I just come back to something you said before, just about free reports. So I agree, nobody should give away free reports, but sometimes there's a topic that needs to be looked at by a research firm or by a consultancy independently that you just don't have the time to get funded or you don't have the obvious sponsors. And so I think it's really important actually that financial advisors push consultancies to do some of that stuff because um, because it's, it's really important for the overall good of the industry Industry, not to just do things that can be funded. Um, so so that, that's the only thing I'll say on that. In terms of the MPS report, thank you. Um, so credit to um, Alex Johnson, our quant analyst, Hannah Weems, our client delivery manager who worked really, really hard on this. Um, I mean, we for a few years, this is the third year we've been doing this report. We only set up four years ago, so you know, we're not going to have much more time to do anything. Um, uh, we've you know gone out to the market to try and get an estimate from the platforms on assets in discretionary model portfolios and it varies hugely so sometimes you know if you take a if you ask um if you ask one platform the share of flows going into discretionary MPS, i'll say 80 percent, but another one would be 20 percent. and right. as everybody knows different platforms support these things really differently um so you know getting to that number is really difficult um but you know we we looked at asset growth so um there's some of the smaller lower priced providers 
are growing the fastest. You'd expect as a proportion of assets, those smaller providers have a better opportunity to grow faster because it's from a smaller base. Um, but even when we look up the ranks, some of those small, those um, larger providers who are lower priced are growing really rapidly. The other profile of firm growing rapidly is, of course, ones that have their own um, quote unquote distribution. So part mm. of vertically integrated models. Um, in terms of outlook for growth, we think it's going to continue. It's really interesting because you know, we've just done a piece of um, that retirement advice research I mentioned um, for Aegon. So we, you know, one of the things we consistently hear is half of advisors say that they would never use a discretionary portfolio manager for or discretionary fund manager for model portfolios or bespoke for clients in retirement. And so we just asked a few more questions about it and um, the report will be out in a few weeks, but um, essentially it's advisors who don't use MPS or discretionary, discretionary fund managers anywhere in their business. It's just not part of their model. Um, it's not a particularly a retirement issue. It is in some cases, but not not particularly. But we think there's, you know, with, with about half of advisors saying they're not using discretionary um, fund managers, there's a lot of opportunity for growth. And there's also a lot of discretionary um, bespoke that we think will continue to move over to models that are much more appropriate in terms of cost and and outcomes for customers um, for people you know with up to a million pounds in assets whereas a few years ago the view would have been you know it's good for people up to sort of 250,000 but that that's really really kind um, there's some really interesting things on pricing some real clustering of pricing on um, the discretionary fee and the, the the model portfolio fee but when we look at OCF it varies a lot more with as advisors really need to be looking at cost and the OCF not just the MPS fee. Now a word from our sponsor. Nikki Heaton Jones is the managing director and the chief investment officer at Betafolio, the high-tech low-cost discretionary model portfolio manager. Typical model portfolio service costs about 36 basis points. That's in addition to the funds, the platform, you know, the advice fees. Tell us a bit about Betafolio's view and approach on fees. Well, I don't think anyone that knows us already, Abraham, would be surprised to hear me say that in a nutshell, NPS fees are too high. Um, if you include the fund charges and the platform fee that you already talked about, we get close to 1%, I think, on average for a lot of retail clients. And that's before they start paying for the financial plan, which is the part of the service that will ultimately add the most value for them in their advisor relationship and experience. Um, so, I mean, my view on fees and Betafolio's view on fees is that they have a real impact on current outcomes that needs attention. Um, and that's why we're building a scalable solution with technology that will allow us to keep costs low. And I think we also should consider the impact of these fees on advisors' businesses too. Advisors need to, to make a profit from, from their work. They need to have a viable business. And their cost bases have been rising because of regulation and the, the more cost they have to pass through to their clients for overcomplicated services in, in turn puts pressure on the advisor's own fees and, and ultimately makes it not possible for them to, to run a, a good business. So fees are really crucial um, and I'm really happy that we're in a position to be having a positive influence on the, the trends in the market. Good stuff. Thank you, Nikki. I, I agree with your point earlier about, well, if you look at the 
percentage growth, you look at percentage growth, because the upstarts, this, this, you know, like us, are coming, starting out with, um, you know, uh, smaller assets, it makes sense that, you know, just in, in, in percentage terms, the growth has a, a much bigger impact. But even if you look at this in terms of amounts, you know, so last year, Betafolio went from a, a hundred million at the start of the year to, a hundred, to, to 750, right? So that's like pulling, you know, and if you, even if you exclude market growth, that's like pulling 600 million uh, sorry, 600 million of assets just just in, in a year. Now, if you compare that with, say, Tartan, for instance, Tartan would have pulled just over a billion in the year. I cannot think of any other um, MPS provider that's pulled that, that, that size of, of money. So you are right that there's gravitation towards the lower cost upstart. And, you know, we know that cost uh, uh, is driving this and technology the the question yeah. in my mind sorry go on you. But i was just going to say i mean the, the growth rate of folio at 703 percent year on year is phenomenal and if you compare that to the next fastest growing saracen um with 200 you know, 199% growth it's incredible and tatton's 42% is is really you know for a firm of that size that's really big growth but you know 703% is just you know it's off the charts in terms of growth so yeah well, thank you yeah well um, to me um technology is is a game changer here and I guess the question is, what are you seeing in terms of how MPS, uh, you know, are, are using technology in, in their proposition? So it's really interesting. We asked about this and and honestly, not much. Um, mm. There's, um, you know, some firms are offering a client portal where there's, you know, portfolio commentaries and, you know, they'll be alerted if there's going to be a rebalance before it happens so that if clients need to be taken out of the, you need to withdraw that cash before it gets swept up into the rebalance, you can do that. It's really not, um, not being done. And to me, the big gap is I think one that you're working on is if you can, for particularly with clients retirement, if you think about, I think it's 60% of advised assets are for mm. retired clients. And mm. so, and and you'd expect that because the 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 need for financial planning increases as you, mm. you know as, as the complexity grows and as you get closer to retirement and so you'd expect the majority of assets to be in retirement that's not a criticism of the advisor market some people seem to think it is that they've got all old clients not enough young and I'm like well yeah, of course they do <laughs> but anyway um so so if you have 60% of retirement you know advised assets are for retirement clients and and you cannot combine the withdrawal strategy with the portfolio management strategy, it's bonkers. So no wonder yeah. advisors are saying, well, I'll just do it myself because then I can figure out, you know, I can withdraw from the from the the, the, the things that have grown the fastest in the last mm. quarter. I can mm. sell those down to deliver income rather than selling down across the portfolio and then rebalancing again. You know, when the clients get their statements, they're like, what is going on? Why are there 50 transactions? And and it just it gives a perception, true or not, because you know most most DFMs would say it doesn't cost any more. And our analysis suggests that actually, um, advisors using outsourced DFM are paying less for funds and portfolio management than they are if they're doing it themselves. Um, 
but the perception is that it's costly because because customers recognize that when there's portfolio turnover, that's going to drive up trading costs. Um, and it just seems inefficient and wrong. So it turns people off. Um, so that, that, that gap in combining from a, te- from a tech perspective, the withdrawal strategy with the portfolio management to me is going to be you know, a big breakthrough for, for this market. That, that's incredible. And that gives me a lot of comfort. You know, I mean, it, it took us a while to figure this out, you know. So I think the, the revelation, uh, you know, I think early last year for us, it was that, you know, there is this thing called financial planning, right? You know, so which we, we do with timeline, you do the risk profiling, all that stuff, cash flow, you know, decumulation strategy, you get all that nailed. And then, you know, on the other side, you've got the, the investment or the engine that drives the plan. We know the platform, um, you know, is just holding the investment. And to me, it's crazy um, that no one's managed to actually get the two talking to each other, um, you know, in a way that, that, that we're doing with, with Timeline and Betafolio. So uh, you, you, got, you got the plan, the goals, the aspirations, um, you know, on one hand, um, doesn't talk to the money, and then you got the money who, you know, and the money manager, in other words, the the, the GFM, who has no idea what the money is for. So um, we'll see that how that evolves. I want I, I wanted to get your thoughts on the growth of um, MPS generally and how far you think this can go. So. Um, what so, so this is a you know the advisor platform market say 600 billion markets going to a trillion um, in in five years time um, and an MPS is just what according to your research 100 million you know throw 20 million you know either side of that uh, actually you know how you know so that puts it at what you know puts it at 15 percent of the advice platform. How do you see this um, evolving? How far can this go? And how, how does it compete with the likes of, you know, a multi-asset fund or advised, um, advised model portfolio, oh, sorry, advised portfolios? So, so it is a small percentage. Um, as a percentage of um, the new assets, it's higher than 15%. I think one right. of the... Um, one of the issues that we have as an industry that, um, that that anybody listening will be well aware of is it's really hard to change the back book. Um, first, from a client perspective, just, you know, you don't necessarily want to open up conversations with people um, to suggest that the portfolio strategy that you'd recommended in the past is somehow wrong, right? That creates that friction that can cause people to, to, to reevaluate the entire relationship. So you don't necessarily want to disrupt that. Um, with new money coming in, it's higher than 15%. Um, I'd, have to, I'd have to look at our report to figure out what we'd said about it. Um, so, but in terms of how, how far it can go, I think it really depends because the, um, the, there are you know, if if DFMs can combine that withdrawal strategy and some of the um, the financial planning elements into portfolio management, I think there's really big opportunity for growth. As I said, I think there's a lot of money to move from bespoke discretionary into models. Um, and and you know, in in our interviews with DFMs, that was one of the things that they pointed to as one of the big drivers of growth is that you know it's moving money across essentially within the business. Um, and and I think there's a lot more room there. Um, but the you know the potential is also that the tool sets get better for 
for advisors to run model portfolios themselves to ease some of the admin headaches and risk that happens around rebalancing, you know, this idea of writing out to clients and, you know, and portfolio drift that happens. It's possible that, you know, there's been a lot of work tried to be done to make that more automated, um, but it's not there yet. Um, I think it'll also be really interesting what happens with the consumer duty um, uh, assessment that, or the, 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 the new rules being proposed by the FCA to essentially, you know, build on from prod um, rules. So if you have to assess the value to the client of the of the portfolio um, for an advisor, A, that's a huge piece of work to do that on an individual basis for clients. And so that might drive another, another you know, lump towards outsourcing um, to, to discretionary fund managers who would do that. Um, but equally, there might be a lot more transparency about the cost and we might get a better sense of how DFMs can drive down cost because if you're running a, you know, a two or three person financial advice firm, um, you're not going to have much pricing power with fund managers. And DFMs, I think, need to be using that pricing power and that buying power to drive down costs. We're not seeing it enough. It's slightly lower. Advisors using DFMs say that they're paying slightly lower for funds, um, but it should be a bigger difference because they're pooling that that, you know, that, that, that buying power. Um, now, that only applies to active funds, though. Um, yeah. So, right. um, but that's seventy percent of assets on platform. Um, yeah. It's it's still a huge proportion. So I think I think there's a lot of opportunity for growth, but there's other things that might make advisor models easier, or there's other things that might um, yeah might drive it further to. Uh, sorry, I went I went totally in circles there. No, as that's usual. brilliant. I, I like it. That's brilliant. You know, I've already again your research. You know, sort of puts the active funds um in terms of ocf uh, or the underlining fund um underlining ocf around 40 to 80 basis points you know and i mean you see some model portfolios that on your chart at you know one percent and things like that and i'm still wondering i mean i'm wondering how they get away with 80 basis points you know <laughs> so, so so to me it's like what battle should you be fighting um as a model portfolio provider so so for instance our typical you know, OCF is something in the region of 20 basis points, right? And then, you know, and then you layer nine basis points to it. We could go out and, and you know, indeed there's some work going on and, you know, uh, sort of uh, create some sort of competition between BlackRock and Vanguard and, and um, you know, Dimensional to get that cost to, say, 18 or 15 basis points, right? You could fight that battle. There's maybe five basis points of fat to remove. Or frankly, <laughs> the, the debate of, from an advisor paying 70, 80 basis points for, for active management in the sense that you could, um, you know, reduce the cost by 75% just from making that move. And so to me, it's like, what battle do you want to fight using the regulatory, sorry, using your skill as an MPS provider to uh, knock off or shave off a few basis points, you know, of the price, or actually the, the, the biggest impact comes from an advisor making the move from, uh, you know, say expensive um, active portfolios to, um, you know, a, a lower cost one. 
So I'm not an investment expert, so I'll leave the investment <laughs> arguments to you, Abraham. Um, but but I think you've you've articulated you know a, a, a you know a compelling scenario there. Um, I think you know in terms of of where to focus, what we hear from advisors is their main considerations. So there's been this big increase in use of multi-asset at the same time as we've seen this increase in MPS, and the driver for that is about reducing business risk and simplifying the advice process, and mm. and that's so important because advisors are constrained in their opportunity to grow and their opportunity to serve more clients, and so you know it's really difficult to hire anybody at the moment. Um, you know, you can't you can't hire financial planners, para planners. Their salaries have, you know, my understanding is about doubled in the last year. Um, it's it's very difficult to bring people into financial advice firms who are ready to 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 do the job. And there's all sorts of great initiatives to try and train people up, but that's a future pipeline. It's not today. So you've got these constraints on advice businesses that you know, advisors can deal with about 161 clients per advisor. And they're not saying that they want to deal with 500 because then you, it's hard to have those one to one relationships, but how can you spend more time on the things that matter most? And the mm. things that matter most to the clients are not the portfolio management. And and most clients don't care. They trust the advisor. We've done loads of focus groups over the last couple of years. One of the best things of lockdown is that the cost of doing a consumer focus group has dropped dramatically because you don't have to hire one of those stupid rooms with the double glass you just have it on zoom and you can mute people if they start to dominate the conversation it's brilliant as a market researcher but when we talk to them about their choices for you know investing in esg funds for example or investing in passive versus active or when we ask them about use of tools they just say i trust my advisor if my advisor thinks it's the right thing to do i trust them because they know me they know what i'm trying to do so you know if i were you and, and I think you are doing this, I'd be thinking about how do I focus on what my advisors need to be able to grow their business, to reduce risk to the business, deliver better client outcomes, better client journeys, better client experience to help them to then focus on the business of helping their clients plan so that they can grow their businesses in the way that they want and in the shape that they want. Um, and so, you know, whether it's shaving off two bits here or there, I don't think that's going to really move the dial. Um, we've seen fantastic evidence that if people who see planners save much more for retirement, they suffer much less stress in terms of their financial sense of well-being. Um, there's all sorts of good things that come out of financial planning. Um, and so the more that providers can focus on helping to make the business of advice easier, the better, in my view. That's that's a brilliant segue to my next question, you know, in terms of what do you see happening in the platform market? You know, you have the likes of, uh, you know, Circle, uh, you know, Fundman, the, the new upstart in that space um, with perhaps slightly different business model than than the established. So this idea of, uh, you know, a small advisor firm, um, it goes be white labeling is the wrong word, you know, but this idea of them owning a, an operating platform uh, because because they are frustrated by the slow pace. I mean, if you can even call it that of innovation, uh, you know, with platform, we don't have for the vast majority of large platform digital account opening process um is in a problem you and i disagree on the definition of a digital signature because i don't believe that um um you know just batching the same old form to clients and uh, just to get docu sign on it uh, or printing the form and signing and scanning back 
is is digital signature, but you you seem to think so. No, no, we don't. Scanned copy, we treat the same as a wet signature because to us they're the right. same. We ca we separate them out in our tables, but when we recognize digital process champions, it's that they require less than, I think it's 20% of forms require a scanned copy or a paper signature. Uh, but of course, the best way to go is to straight through processing. Um, but, but no, 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 scanned copy is the same as a wet signature. I agree, 100%. All right. I, okay, then. So, so in that regard, I mean, is this 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 idea of advisors uh, becoming platform managers and 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 um, you know controlling it in some shape or form? How, where do you see that going? So, um, so we did a report at the beginning of last year. Again, it was another free report because we tried to get sponsors and they all wanted to control what we were saying about them. So we we're like, forget it. We'll just do it for free because this is great. I mean, the, the control that these firms are trying to put in and, and I agree white labeling wasn't the right title. We used that because when we were talking to advisors, that's the terminology they were using. So we thought we'll just use the terminology of the customer, but it's probably wrong. We should have, we should have moved that on, but it's a free report on our website, spectrum of white label platform. Um, and there's all sorts of stuff in there about what it takes to, run your own platform and the considerations to go through it, why people are doing it, what to consider. Um, and 360 also did a really good paper on, 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 on this topic. So, so, I mean, I think it's really, really interesting what's happened. It's great that there's innovation. Um, are we going to see this, you know, this stampede towards firms launching their own platform? Um, we certainly seem to be seeing it when we published our paper at the beginning of last year. Half of firms with over 250 million or more in assets said that they were planning to launch their own platform in the next three years, um, and that that was a that's a huge number, right? It's um, it was it was pretty astonishing, but that's dropped off pretty significantly. It wasn't as big of a sample, <laughs> so we didn't publish the figures, but it dropped down to about um, about a third of firms in that category who were thinking about it. And and it's not that you know those white either those white labelers or the bespoke platform providers won't move their proposition on, but you know back to that question about what is it that you're doing as an advice firm and what do you want to have ownership for? Do you really want to have cast response? And I know that there's lots of great sales literature from those white label providers saying that you don't have to have the cast responsibility. But if you look at the regulators definition and look at what 360 published, if you tell your client it's your platform, you are responsible for that. And you cannot outsource that to the platform provider. So you have to be really aware of what it is you're doing it and why you're doing it. And the interesting thing is I think there was a perception that firms were doing this to get a few bips. That was actually yeah. the last reason that came up in right. our conversations with firms. Right. It's about operational efficiency, the nightmare of the tech. The real problem, in my view, is the back office systems. And we see it in our data. When we survey advisors and we ask them about the tech they're using, platforms get pretty good reviews where there's a lot of frustration as the back office systems. And so, you know, we're seeing all this innovation around platforms because it's so hard to move the data and so are you really going to are you really going to do that? Are you going to try a new platform, you know, back off the system when you have to clean the data, invest a huge amount to get that ready, move it across? And it's not going to be perfect. Let's be honest. Yeah, and then move it across to where, you know, you know, so yeah. that, that that's no really, really fascinating stuff. Look, Etha, there, there's a lot. I haven't even covered, uh, you know, two thirds of my questions with you, but I, I have to for the for the sake of your time. And then, of course, um, our listeners getting bored of uh, me yammering on. <laughs> I have to try and, uh, and wrap this up. So um, tell us a little bit where we can find you, um, you know, 
you mentioned your your um, your uh, advisor panel. Um, anything that comes to mind that you want our audience to know or or, or, or to do? Great. Well, you should definitely come see Abraham speak at Next Wealth Live on the twenty second <laughs> of March. <Wow. laughs> Because we'll have another conversation about advisor tech. Um, that's uh, so that that's one thing. Next Live, and then the research panel. And um, we really want to hear from people working in financial advice businesses. So the Next Wealth directory, or so the Next Wealth panel. If you Google that, um, you can you can sign up, and then you get free access to all of our research. And um, if you're at work in a financial advice firm, and um, and you can share your views so that we can aggregate those up and try and and change the industry for good. Ever Hopkins. Thank you very much for your time and, and wisdom. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Abraham. It's a delight. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.